discovering stories of courage, determination, and hope. Welcome to Faith Radio's On the Road. Now, here's Ryan Thomas. Fifty-one years. That was the sentence likely facing Marcus Clapper. Fifty-one years in prison for his role as a drug dealer. But as Marcus considered what he called that gut punch of news, he picked up a phone and called his father. The conversation he had on that father's day would change his life, his broken relationship with his dad, and rekindle his faith in Jesus. And he wouldn't serve one more day in prison. The incredible story of Marcus Clapper, today on The Road. Welcome to the show, sir. How's it going today, good man? It is going great, Ryan. Thank you again so much for uh, for having me on your show and allowing me to speak to your on-the-road audience. Oh, man, it is so great to have you here. And I've got to be honest up front. At first, for some reason, I was thinking you were the guy that invented that device where you walk into the room, you clap, and it turns on the lights. But that is not the case, in fact. <laughs> yeah, I, I don't know if I'd be talking to you today if I was um, the, the clapper. Um, but yeah, that that came out my sophomore year in high school. And I have to tell you, it was pretty brutal. Uh, walking the halls of, of school, um, sophomore, junior year during Christmas time when those commercials aired, you know, pretty much every other commercial uh, with the old lady, you know, falling or whatever, flapping from her bed. Yeah, so I would walk the halls and I would hear that clap bunch, clap bunch, the clapper. And so, yeah, so I, I, I would tell people like, yeah, I wish that my grandfather or whatever had invented that because, yeah, I'm sure that they somehow made you know millions and millions of dollars off of it so oh man i'm so sorry to dig into youthful emotions there like that i didn't realize (laughs) i should have (laughs) no no that's actually one of the least painful youth emotions that I have, as you, you know from reading my book. Yes. So, uh, no, no, it's not a big deal. I love it. It's, uh, it's, I, I, I am proud of the Clapper name. <laughs> Beautifully said. Well, before we get into the story itself, uh, the first thing to note, this wasn't a story that you ever intended to write, but one, basically you say God just wouldn't stop calling you to do so. And that process of him pursuing you, I mean, that had to be an interesting experience to be sure. Um, I had a very checkered past and there were people from Michelle and I's past that, um, that potentially would want to harm us for, for sharing um, my story and for, you know, talking about what we had done and what we were involved in. And so Satan really used that and the fear and the anxiety of, of, hey, these people could come back and harm you. These people could harm your family, your kids, um, your, Michelle's job. I mean, she could lose her job, potentially, if she talks about her past and how she was involved with you. So sure. there, were, there were a lot of, um, a lot of things that Satan threw at me um, in those early, I guess, days uh, of when the Holy Spirit put it in my mind. And, and I battled with that, quite honestly, for the last six years, up until the point that I released the book. Yeah. Well, that really sets the scene. Let's press the rewind button now. Uh, introduce us to who you were growing up. Your dad's a minister. There's a lot of faith in the household. Who was God to you, first of all, on an individual level? Did you buy into your family's faith? Yeah, 
so my dad was a pastor uh, until I was about age 10. So I grew up in a, a very, I would call it a very legalistic Christian home. And, um, you know, although my dad was a pastor and we went to church every Sunday and, and Wednesday night, um, my parents, specifically my dad, I never saw my dad pray. I never saw my dad read his Bible. I never saw him have a devotion or even a relationship with Jesus for that matter. And I, it, it sounds very hard for people to like, wait a second, how does a, how do you grow up in a, a pastoral home and yet not know you know, what a relationship with Jesus looks like, but that was the reality, you know? And so my dad worked a lot and was very absent in my life. And so the only time I really saw my dad was when he was angry and I was disciplined. So very early on, I saw God in the same way as this just very angry God. There's a right and a wrong. And if you do something wrong, then you're, you're, you're going to be punished and the punishment is severe. We are sharing the story today of Mr. Marcus Clapper. He authors the new book, The Love of a Father and the Journey of His Prodigal Son. It is a gripping read. Let me tell you what. Ryan Thomas is my name. Faith Radio's On the Road show. Thanks so much for being here today. So you write that you start to rebel against those pretty high standards. And does that begin with alcohol abuse, Marcus? Or is that even more of an outward symptom maybe of something uh, deeper going on. Yeah, absolutely. Um, it, it, I think, I don't want to say it always is in everyone's case, but um, I, I feel like it's the major, almost the majority of the time that, that we use substances to numb pain or mask the pain. And my dad was, and parents both were just very absent in my life. And, and um, I felt very alone for a long, large part of my large part of my high school years, and and so, um, you know, the those I, my parents started to be more controlling. Their rules started to become harsher and harsher, and so I started to rebel. And um, it, I was wound so tight that when I started to rebel, it just kind of went off the tracks. And, and so alcohol was kind of the first step. And I started drinking probably my sophomore year, uh, junior year. I really you know, started partying and drinking quite a bit. And by my senior year, uh, it was, it was a, an every weekend, even weekday night kind of thing for me. It just became uh, really what I felt like was my only real escape from, mm. from my family uh, and from that judgmental kind of angry fire and brimstone home that I was being sure. raised in. Does the alcohol, does the, the lifestyle, is that what leads you then into conflict with the law at that point? Or is that more of a process you're headed towards it? When I finally went away to college, moved from Fort Myers to Tampa and got a, away from my parents, you know, it was just like at that point there was nothing to keep me in check. You know, at least when I lived at home, I had my parents or at least to kind of sneak in at night, you know, right. after right. I've been drinking. Right. But when you're, you live in your a dorm room or, you know, you don't have, you're not worried about sneaking in. And so that's when really the wheels fell off. And I, I just lived in such excess. So, you know, it, it was almost natural progression. I, I drove, you know, while intoxicated pretty much every day, uh, and just was really out of control. So getting, starting that, that cycle of getting in trouble with the law 
was uh, just a natural progression at that point. So at 22 years old, then you say you started to experiment with drugs as well and sort of continue what you call a bit of a natural progression. How did you first encounter that and how did it begin to advance pretty rapidly? Never in my wildest dreams, you know, did I ever think that I would be taking drugs. I, I don't know why. It was just, you know, that stigma growing up. It's like drinking was one thing, but uh, taking drugs just seems so like, whoa, that's right. like, that's a that's a bad word, right? Absolutely. And, um, and so I, Michelle and I's relationship who she's my wife now, almost 30 years later, uh, we'd met in high school, my senior year and her and I's relationship really started to crumble, uh, towards my, uh, like the fourth year of college or so. And a lot of it just had to do with how reckless and out of control I was. And she was on this a little bit more, focused, not a little bit, but a lot more focused path where school and her future career were her priority, which is, you know, what we all go to college for or supposed to, right? <laughs> um, at least some people, I guess. I've heard and that. Uh, yeah. so we were, we were really headed in two different directions. And so she had, you know, she had really been um, the one person that I really felt close to for a very long time. So to feel that slipping away was very hard. And so we really searched, uh, you know, what would help us, what would fix our relationship. And, um, you know, just through a, 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 some crazy, you know, kind of little circumstances or situations, um, I, I was introduced to the drug ecstasy. And, you know, it, in that moment, it seemed like, okay, this is what will help fix Michelle and I. And, you know, that's how Satan works, right? He, he knows when to just put those little things, subtle things in our path that seem so, you know, kind of harmless at the time. But he knows that when we head down that path a year, two years, five years, you know, our lives are in just complete disarray. So that's how I got into drugs and then very quickly um, got into selling drugs and the clubs and it just it grew from there. I want to paint the picture of that lifestyle a little bit further because you were quite an entrepreneur at that point. But we're talking <laughs> with Marcus Clapper today. He authors the new book, The Love of a Father and the Journey of His Prodigal Son, today on Faith Radio's On the Road. And, you know, actually, before I ask you about beginning to, to traffic drugs, in terms of your relationship with God, obviously, behaviorally, you're moving away from all of these things, all these rules that you had learned about in your family in terms of inwardly, in terms of your spiritual life, were you just basically saying no to God at this point? Was there still some kind of communication, some kind of concept that, yeah, God is out there somewhere. This is an easy question to answer, but it has several different kind of layers or, or answers to it. But very simply, God was absolutely had zero part of my life. I wanted nothing to do with God. I had completely turned my back on my dad and, and God. Um, and not just like, I don't want to go to church. I don't want God a part of my life. Like very outwardly, I would say, I don't, I don't want anything to do with God. I don't want anything to do with my dad. Mm. Um, it was, um, I was at that point just full on very openly expressing my, um, you know, my, I don't want to say hatred, because that's too strong of a word, but just my disdain 
for God and anything that had to do with God and the church and my dad. So it was, you know, he was still, I still had a moral compass because of how I'd been raised. Um, so there was that, but, um, I just wanted nothing to do with God. And I was very open about that with, with people close to me. Understood. Yeah, that makes perfect sense. Thanks for the painting that picture in terms of, you know, starting to move drugs yourself, becoming a drug dealer. I mean, you were no small time player. You, you were living large, right? I mean, you built up a business that really was giving you a life that outwardly looked pretty perfect. Yeah. Um, yeah, it's hard to, it's hard to paint the picture on in the radio <laughs> over the radio, um, or, or an interview or even in a book as to what the life I lived. And, and first of all, the point of my book and my life is not to glamorize that life because quite honestly, um, there really wasn't anything other than a worldly glamor about it. Um, there was a lot of pain and just, it was, it was an extremely hard time, but life was crazy. I mean, we did whatever we wanted. I mean, I partied seven nights a week. Um, you know, I did whatever I wanted, uh, clubs, strip clubs, you name it. Um, what traveled, uh, we traveled to Vegas quite a bit, Michelle and I, and ran in circles with, um, people that I never had imagined that I would be running in circles with famous people, athletes, different things like that. Mm. And, uh, it just, it became very, um, I don't want to say controlled chaos, but it just, it became very chaotic. Uh, but it was, you know, from, from the world standpoint, it's like, man, this guy's living the life, you know, my friends around me were like, man, Clapper, like I would love to just live for five seconds in Clapper's life. You know, that was kind of how, what people would say. Of course. And, um, you know, little did they know really what was going on inside and kind of under the surface. So then we come to the summer of 2000 and you are caught and you yeah. run into the ultimate trouble with the law that you face to this point. How did that happen? First of all, and in what kind of legal trouble did you find yourself facing? Yeah. Wow. Um, so very high level. Um, my, the two, there were two people that I was supplying to and out of state. And, uh, one of them was arrested and unbeknownst to myself as well as his partner. And he in turn cooperated with the police and, and turned out, rolled over on, on me as well as his partner. And so I was arrested and it just really blew up from there. I mean, going to jail, I, I don't know. The, the best way to say is like, I, I think whenever we're making mistakes, whenever we're sinning or doing things we don't realize or that we shouldn't be doing. Uh, we don't ever think about the consequences. We just don't. We don't look and say, oh, you know, this really could turn out badly. You know, our, our minds were so short-term focused. And so I never really looked at this and thought, okay, I could get caught for this and be facing, you know, what amounted to be potentially a, a life sentence in prison. And so after I was arrested uh, here in Tampa and was in jail waiting um, to be what was extradited to North Carolina, Michelle had gotten a hold of an attorney in North Carolina where I was going to be extradited to. And he basically leveled with her and said, you know, Mark is facing 
51 years in prison without parole for three felony trafficking drug charges. And, um, you know, he said, like, this is this is serious. Like in North Carolina right now, the way the drug laws are, like there is zero tolerance. So that 51 years is that's pretty much set in stone. It's going to take a miracle to get out of that. Um, and so that was that was a real uh, to say punch in the gut is really understating. It was uh, very earth shattering. Can't imagine. Marcus Clapper with us today on the road. The book is called The Love of a Father and the Journey of His Prodigal Son. So that takes us to one of the most uh, poignant and really hinge moments of the whole story, which is Father's Day 2000. And you decide to make a phone call to your dad. First of all, why did you make it? And how did it end up changing so very much? So, uh, so I was arrested earlier that week and my parents, they, they obviously had no idea what I was involved in in the life I was living. And my, my relationship with my dad was so bad at that point. We had not talked in months and the last time we had spoken, I never wanted to speak to him again. And so I, um, I, I when Michelle told me that I was facing 51 years in prison, I, I asked her if she would call my parents and tell them where I was and ask if they would take a collect call from me. And that leading up to that phone call, I I mean, I didn't plan for it to be on father's day of 2020. Uh, I just, it was a Sunday I was in jail and it just happened to be father's day. But, uh, leading up to that phone call, I, I just didn't even know what to say to my dad. And so the first thing that came out of my mouth was, you know, if you don't start loving me as a father uh, loves a son unconditionally for the first time in your life, then I don't want to ever talk to you again. And, um, you know, I, I don't, I don't know, you know who I was or what, who I thought I was or why I thought I had that the ability to, to make that ultimatum to my dad. But, um, you know, that's, those are the words that came out of my mouth. And I, I think I was just so tired of all the pain and the bitterness and the anger and the judgment that my dad and I had towards each other that I just, you know, I just, that's all I could think to say was like, I need your love right now. I don't need your judgment. I don't need your anger. And, um, you know, for the first time in a long time, I just, I needed a daddy, you know, Yeah. I needed a dad to just, uh, to just hold me and tell me that it was going to be okay. And that, um, and that he loved me. Um, the, you know, the words that I had honestly never heard from my dad. And, um, and so, you know, it was, uh, the amazing part of it was my dad's response was not firing back with anger or judgmentalness or bitterness like he had my entire life. He said, I will, I will stand by you no matter what. Wow. And, uh, and that's what he did. And, you know, as I look back on my life and our lives as a family, here I am 21 years from that phone call. And the miracle of this story is that God used that pain and that moment and everything that led up to that phone call. He used that 21 years later 
by allowing me to be able to share that with others, to, to be able to show others that, you know, this, the, the pain that they've gone through is forgivable and is, um, they are lovable no matter what. And so it really turned us because in that moment, you know, our, both of our hearts were, were started to be free of all the anger and the hatred and started to open up to love. Basically, I mean, this is an incredible process and it's not momentary. This is the hinge moment where something beautiful becomes and begins to happen. In terms of the legal side of things, I mean, as you said, you were facing 51 years in prison, but ended up not serving another day in jail. Uh, You talk about miracles that come alongside that. Can you just give us an overview of what happened? Yeah. So, you know, I talk about three of the miracles that happened in my book, but if you knew the story, um, I, I can't even count the, the numbers of, of miracles that happened over the course of, um, you know, the, the years leading up to it, as well as even those months before it. And, and, but the main one was, you know, as I mentioned, I'm, here I am sitting 51 years in prison and the, you know, even I was cooperative, honest with the police and they, they really, you know, my attorney as well as the police just really said that they were shocked at, at, you know, when they talked with me, they, you know, they were like, wow, this kid actually, you know, sounds, you know, relatively intelligent, even though I wasn't. Um, and clearly, and, um, you know, he's this, you know, this, you know, kind of all American looking kid. He sounds, he's well-educated. He sounds, you know, like he's, you know, he sounds like he's got a good head on his shoulder. Like, how did he get himself into his, this mess? And so, you know, really God was, God was working in that situation because honestly it had nothing to do with me. He was working in their hearts and their minds in order to soften their hearts and minds in order to allow me a second chance. But at the end of the day the, I was facing 51 years and there was little to nothing I could do about that. Yeah. And so um, the one greatest miracle was simply they came up with the idea for me to set up my supplier. And so um, my wife, Michelle, who was my fiance at the time, and yes, she still stayed with me. And yes, she's with me to this day. Um, truly, a mir- probably the greatest miracle of all my miracles is that I've actually held on to a, the same person through all of this. <laughs> but um, she, uh, the, the nuts and bolts of it was we had to, to get my supplier to basically take drugs from me, from her, and, um, and in order for them to set him up and arrest him and to continue up that chain of, you know, the chain of command, I guess. And so Michelle agreed to wear a wire and to set him up. And, um, you know, I talked a lot more about it in the book, and we don't have time for that, but the, the, the long and the short of it was, um, that happened. He was arrested and, and God saved me. It was a truly a miracle how it all felt, you know, fell into place, but God saved me through that process. And, um, because of that, I was able to get a second chance and the attorneys, the judge, um, the police, they all told my attorney, you know, we don't know what it is about Marcus, but we see something in him of all the the hundreds of other people that were arrested below me that were involved in this, for some reason we see something in him that we feel like he's worth saving, like he's worth giving a second chance. Wow. And, you know, 
<laughs> here I am 21 years later right. trying to uh, trying to make good on uh, on that opportunity and just trying to help others through my pain and that second chance that I was given to hopefully uh, to help others. Oh, my word. I mean, we have been so blessed today by this conversation. And, and I got to tell you, it's really only the tip of the iceberg in the book. I mean, there is so much about the journey of reconciliation, the journey of healing, and you know, just the benefit and the blessing of reaching back and telling this story that Marcus Clapper unwraps in the love of a father in the journey of his prodigal son. He's been our guest today on the road. Marcus, uh, before we say farewell, where is the best place to go to begin the journey of picking up a copy of this great book? Sure. Uh, my website, www.marcusclapper.com. That's M-A-R-C-U-S-C-L-A-P-P-E-R.com. And that's the best place to go. Uh, it's available through other outlets, but uh, that's the best place to go. And uh, Ryan, I, I truly do appreciate your time today and the opportunity to talk to yourself uh, as well as your on-the-road audience. Uh, I just am so grateful to be not only alive, free, but given this opportunity to share with others. Thanks for sharing in the story of this latest episode of Faith Radio's On the Road. For more on today's conversation and the full podcast archive of all our episodes, look for On the Road when you visit MyFaithRadio.com.